The scripture reading for today comes from a selection of passages in Proverbs and James. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. Let another praise you, and not your own mouth, a stranger, and not your own lips. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town, and spend a year there, and trade, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. And hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to rush into evil. And a false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. The crucible is for silver. And the furnace is for gold. And a man is tested by his praise. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we... um... Thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of James and the book of Proverbs and what kind of light is revealed to us in these texts about ourselves and about you. And today as we talk about how we talk about ourselves, I pray that you would help us to see you clearly, see the gospel um, for the depth that it is and for what it can do. And then we would see ourselves in light of both you and the gospel. So help us today, Lord. We live in a culture that is filled with self-talk. And we need your grace to awaken us to how we need to change through the authority of your word, the power of the Spirit, and the banner of the Lordship of Christ. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, I was uh, interviewed for a uh, local magazine that is publishing an article on people's response to September 11. Coming up here in just a few weeks is the 10th anniversary. Uh, the person interviewing me asked me um, where I was when I first heard of uh, the planes hitting the Twin Towers. I'm sure you can remember where you, you were. And then they asked me a really interesting question. The interviewer said, how do you think 9-11 changed you? That was a really insightful question. I pondered that for a moment and thought, how has 9-11 changed me? And then it it dawned on me that what happened in 9-11 was really a shattering of my sense of safety. Attacks were something that happened on the other side of the world. And I said, it awakened me to the fact that we're more vulnerable than we probably realize. See, I think 9-11 showed us, perhaps shockingly so, how vulnerable life can really be. Last weekend, um, the same thing happened in the state fair. I don't know how many times I've seen that horrible image of that stage collapsing. And every time I see that, I'm just reminded of how quickly life can change. I mean, one moment you're waiting for a concert with Sugarland, and the next moment you're literally running for your life. Life can just change um, almost in an in instant in, in ways that are remarkable and scary. And and the problem is, is that although we know that is true, we don't normally live our lives that way. That's why James, when choosing a metaphor for life, doesn't use words that are safe or robust. He doesn't say, your life is a journey filled with 
valleys and hills. He doesn't say life is a battle filled with struggles or victories. No, what instead he does is he tries to shock us. Almost offends us by saying, your life is a mist. A mist. It, it appears for a little time and then vanishes away. So why would James use this kind of language? Why would he use this kind of metaphor? The reason is that James, frankly, is alarmed at the fact that people do not live their lives like they should. And it shows very specifically in how they talk about themselves, about their plans, and about the future. Such that I think that James would agree with this title today that we're looking at. Be careful, little mouth, what you say about yourself. So right now we're talking about our talk. And we've been doing this now for three weeks. This is the third of five weeks. And two weeks ago we learned from uh, James chapter 3 the importance and the power of the tongue. I mean, who could forget this blistering verse, James 3a. The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. That that, that is an in-your-face sort of verse. And then last week we learned some truths about how we talk about other people or about how we talk to them. And the first one was that we need to be motivated in our words um, for the glory of God, meaning we need to use words that advance his mission, his purpose, uh, his agenda. Then we also saw that we should talk to others in a way that's spiritually helpful and not hurtful. Meaning that it's not just kind words and it's not just direct words. It it means that those words need to be used in such a way that they advance God's mission in a person's life. That they're spiritually helpful, not needlessly hurtful words. And then finally we saw that this notion of hurtful words, they come from somewhere. And they come from frustrated passions and desires. Meaning that you have these desires, these longings, and when someone gets in your way or something happens that your desires are not able to be met and you use words that are sinful, they're harsh, they're direct, they're overly angry, they're manipulative. Those are all words that come from a heart that has been frustrated in terms of its desires. Now today, we're going to take another step in learning how we communicate um, about ourselves and what James 4, verses 13 to 16 is going to do is give us um, a number of ways um, to look at our heart and our mouth and, for that matter, how we view life. And James is going to help us to expand our definition of what boasting really is. And I want you to see in this text how easily it is and the various ways that boasting can take over our life. And so we're going to use James 4 and then a couple other passages like Proverbs 27 and then Romans 3 to shed some light on this self-talk. So there's three truths that we're going to talk about this morning. The first one is this, and that is that self-talk is common. In fact, self-talk is very common. So what James is doing here in chapter 4, verses 13 to 16, is he is talking about the overarching problem of self-centeredness. And He'll carry that theme all the way through chapter 5 and verse 11. And he's he's pressing into this worldview that his people have and that we have and have to wrestle with, with not just what we say, but the, the, the view of life that a person has, how they're processing um, their own life, their, the, the, the events that are happening to them. And what James is dialing into is that how we talk is a window to our thinking. 
So his tone is rather direct and confrontational. Look at verse 13. He just comes out of the gate and says, come now. So that's not a very nice way to start an address. The NIV renders it as, now listen. The Living Bible says, look here. Or to put it in the way that you or I might say it, it could sound like this. Hey, listen up. Right? When do you say that? When do you say, hey, listen up? You say that when you're trying to give your kids instructions and they're goofing around and laughing and they're not listening. And you go, hey, listen up. Come on, you do that, right? Or, or you're a soccer coach and you've called your kids to come stop kicking the balls into the goal. Come on over here, kids. And they, they still keep kicking the ball and you blow in your whistle and they, you go, hey, listen up. Or if you got two people who are arguing and you're trying to interject as they're fighting and they're bantering back and forth and arguing and they just won't stop, what do you do? You go, hey, hey, listen up. So you use this sort of address when you're trying to wake the person up or to insert yourself when the people who are engaging in conversation or in how they're living are frankly clueless to the environment that they're creating or the dynamics that are swirling around them. And so James is, his aim here is to wake us up and wake us up to what? Well, the main issue that James is driving at is this matter of self-centeredness or self-sufficiency. In fact, he talks about people who speak very definitively and very presumptuously, but very commonly. They say things like, look at verse 13, come now, or hey, listen up, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, this is verse 13, and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. So the challenge with this statement is that this is... The way that most of us talk. We look at the future and we look at what has happened in the past. We make plans and at a certain level there's nothing wrong with this. But James tells us that in our thinking about life and in our talking about life, we fail to remember some really important things. The first, he says in verse 14, he says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. In other words, life is uncertain. Meaning you talk about tomorrow as if it's certain when the reality is tomorrow is very uncertain. James tells them and us what we really know. We know that tomorrow is certain. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Yet oftentimes in our talk, we talk as if this reality of the uncertainty of tomorrow is not even a factor in how we live. We talk about the future as if it is certain when in fact we know it is not certain. So James says first the problem is life is uncertain. The second thing he says is that life is vulnerable. Verse 14, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a moment and then vanishes. So he highlights the frailty and the limits of being a human being. That life is far more vulnerable and unstable than what we often realize. And he identifies here that when you're living your life, I mean, it feels like you're going to live forever, right? I mean, when you think about the totality of the time frame of how we live and where you are in your lifetime right now, I mean, it, it, it feels like... You know, things have been this way for as long as I can remember, right? I mean, for as long as I can remember, life's been like this. Well, that's what, 40 years. That's not very long. On the scale of time, it's a very small window. And so James says here that your life is like a vapor of mist. It appears for a little, and then it vanishes. He reminds them that that life is short, it's limited, and it's vulnerable. The challenge with these two thoughts, life is uncertain and that life is vulnerable, is that you've already known that these are true. 
None of you look at this and are like, oh, I didn't know that life was uncertain, Mark. I had no idea that life was vulnerable. The fact of the matter is, these are not new truths, but we live our daily life as if they are not actually in play. We know theoretically that life is uncertain. We know that theoretically it is vulnerable. But the reality is, you get up, you go to work, you go to bed. You get up, you go to work, you go to bed. You get up, you go to work, you go to bed. And your life just kind of moves in a regular, predictable pattern. And this pattern almost feels like it's a a natural law, like it's a given. And, And you know how you really, really have been sucked into this is what happens when your life somehow has a wrench thrown into it. Oh, you have traffic, right? You're going to be late. Someone didn't show up on time. Your cell phone takes four seconds longer to load up. You're like, ah, right? And suddenly now this pattern and predictability of life that has become so much a part of just the, the, the drumbeat of your existence as a human being has now been altered and you feel as though, wait a minute, I've been done wrong when the fact of the matter is, no, you've just been woken up to the reality of what life really is. You become accustomed to the predictability, the normalcy, the pattern of life. I mean, you buy a home and it increases in value, right? Yeah. <laughs> wrong you you get a job and and they invest in a 401k or remember this word a pension right and 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 then at the end of your retirement that there's money left over for them to be able to pay you or you invest your invest pardon me the government takes your money in social security and then when you turn 65 or 67 or 75 or 80 in the future they're going to give you money and it's all going to be there right those are the promises that our culture makes to us Part of growing up and part of being mature is realizing that life is not predictable as we think it is. In fact, it's coming to realize that life really hangs by a thin thread. Providence of God controls all of this. And part of growing up is realizing that bad stuff happens and that life is really hanging by this thin thread. Kids don't realize this. This is why they're kids and why we're supposed to be and act like adults. For instance, when our family was camping recently, my wife and I were going for a walk, and we, we noticed a number of boys who were under the age of 10 who were riding their bikes. And one particular uh, boy who was a cousin of ours was um, showing off to his other friends about his ability to ride his bike without hands, first of all, and then without feet, secondly. And, and, and he was, it was such a crazy, funny image of this boy riding. And he's like, look, look at me, guys. Look at me. No hands, no feet. And then he was so impressed with himself that he was watching how he looked, right? With his head down while there's a car coming. And my wife and I are like, hey, 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 hey. And he dodges around the car. And we're like, oh. And my wife, as only a woman who's had three boys in her life, said this, it is a miracle that any boy lives beyond the age of 10. <laughs> <laughs> And if you have had boys, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They make that 11th birthday like, praise God from whom all blessings flow. You just got to sing the doxology when that happens because it's just, it's a miracle that they live. Why? Because they think there's a strong steel beam holding life together and they don't realize it hangs by a thread, right? It hangs by a thread. And what James is saying here is that it is a miracle that life even works, that it's far more vulnerable than we even realize. Now, undergirding all of this is the issue of God's providence. That that really, this thin line of life is held together by God's providential care. In fact, that's what he says in verse 15. Look at, he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, 
For those of you who are, tend to be overly spiritual, James is not suggesting that you annoyingly add to all of your statements in life, if the Lord wills. So please don't go out of hearing saying, we're going to Wendy's, if the Lord wills. Don't be doing this. Or, uh, or, or come to the Fresh Encounter tonight, if the Lord wills. And this is a great building, and hopefully we can use it, if the Lord wills. Don't, don't be annoyingly overly spiritual like that. No one's impressed by that except for you. So the... <laughs> Instead, what he means is that there needs to be this undergirding sense of God's providence, that everything in life is held together, true, by this thin thread, but this thin thread is really strong when it's God's wonderful, sovereign control. And that God is undergirding everything. He's James hitting here on this cavalier attitude of self-centeredness or overconfidence. In a word, what James is driving at is the problem of self-sufficiency. Now, self-sufficiency is a huge problem because at the core of what even sin is, sin, theologically, is self-sufficiency. Our rebellion against God embedded within us is this attempt to run our own lives, to be autonomous, to be self-sufficient, to get God off of our backs. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to live my own life. And that's the essence of what sin is. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. And that's what you battle with your children. That's what you battle in your own soul. So there's a theological issue with this self-sufficiency, but there's another problem. That self-sufficiency is part of the cultural air that we breathe. In sort of a good sense, the nature of the freedoms of the United States are based on this self-individualism, this rugged individualism, this self-realization, the fact that you need to depend on yourself and do it yourself. That's part of the beauty of freedom. But the trap of that is if you combine the culture of self-actualization or rugged individualism, combine that with the theological issue of self-autonomy, well, then you could see that this self-talk could become just part of the very culture that we live in. In fact, I would tell you, if you become the kind of person that James would want you to be, and then I think the reason we have this is so you could become that kind of person, you'll be radically different than the culture of our world. Radically different than how most people live their life. This is why in the middle of the Great Recession in 2008, and even now when the stock market is seemingly to to be on unstable ground, and even the oracle from Omaha doesn't really know what to do with um, what's happening in our culture and in our economy, that there's a great opportunity for you to demonstrate that my faith isn't in our economy or our country. I'm a citizen of another kingdom. And the providence of God has to be lived out. But part of the world that we live in is this cultural air of self-talk. So that's the first thing that James helps us with. Here's the second thing, and it's this. Boasting is the absence of God in our talk. Now, what I want to do today is expand your definition of boasting. What James says next is really remarkable. Look at it in verse uh, 16. He says, as it is... You boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Now remember, he says that just after saying, you talk about today or tomorrow, we're going to go to this city, buy and sell and make a profit. So that's, I mean, that's the thing that was said. Tomorrow we're going to go do this, and we're going to buy and sell and make a profit. And to that statement, James says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. So he tags that former conversation as boasting, and I find that to be fascinating. Because most of us think of boasting as the things that come out of our mouth where we over-exaggerate um, our strengths or minimize our weaknesses. Or, you know, hey, look, that skit, I mean, that, wasn't that convicting? I mean, my goodness, I thought of a bunch of you who needed to listen to that one. That was, that was like spot on. I was praying for you. 
you know. As I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, God, help me. This is, this, I'm seeing way too much of myself in these. But the, the definitions of boasting goes way beyond this. In fact, there's two Greek words here that are really important. The word boasting is the Greek word karukamai, and it means to rejoice or to glory in. In one respect, it can be a very positive word, depending on the object. In fact, if you glory in God, in the Lord, in Christ, in the cross, or tribulations, boasting is entirely appropriate. The word derives its worth and its value from the object that it glories in. So you can think of boasting as this very simply. It's whatever you're excited about. And when you boast, you get excited about yourself. When you glory in yourself, when you glory in who and what you are. The second word is the word arrogance. And James says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. And this is the Greek word alazon. And it means this, one who makes more of himself than reality justifies or promises more than what he can perform. So again, James says, you're glorying in your ability to do something beyond what you can really perform. And James links this boasting in your arrogance to these statements about what you're going to do in the upcoming days and weeks and years. So if you put this together, here's how I could translate verse 16. Talking this way is overconfident rejoicing in the future when you have no real ability to make it happen. And if I put it together with what James says in verse 15 about saying, if the Lord wills, then I come up with this definition that boasting is simply talking as if God is not part of the plan. Oh, this changes how we see boasting entirely. Boasting now is not just saying something about ourselves that's overly positive. Certainly, that is boasting. That's clearly wrong. But now, here's another definition that widens the application. Now, listen carefully. Boasting is talking as if God is not essential to everything that we do. So it's not just the presence of proud words, it's the absence of worshipful words. What connects these two definitions, both boasting in terms of proud words that come out of your mouth, overextending, or boasting where you simply neglect the presence of God in your future, is a self-sufficient attitude. Both perspectives um, make the mistake of getting it wrong in terms of who God is and who we are. Pride can express itself by talking as if you're better than others, acting as if you made yourself the way that you are, or pride can come into play if it simply expresses itself by talking about the future as if it was not entirely dependent upon God. In both cases, the issue is God's role versus ours. Now, James is not the only place that talks about this contrast between how we talk about ourselves and also how we talk about God. Proverbs 27.1, you heard it read, but here's what it says. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. In other words, you don't know what tomorrow is going to be like, so boasting ignores the real limits of your humanity. Here's another one. 1 John 2, 16, write that down or you could look there. It warns about the pride of possessions. It talks about the various forms of pride that express itself in our culture. And one of them is pride in possessions. And the danger is that we would begin to think, and, and here's why you have pride in possessions. Because if you begin to think that you got these possessions all by yourself. Pride in possessions is not so much a love of stuff. No, no, no. 
It's not that you love your car. It's not that you love your house. It's that you love what your car says about you. It's what you love what your house says about you. It's, it's that you have the power, the position, the prestige, prestige, the earning potential to purchase such things. That these things become emblems and symbols of what we want people to think about us. I mean, this is why when you're sitting at a stoplight, as you're minding your own business, listening to Glad on the, on the CD or Fernando Ortega or Sandy Patty or the Imperials. Okay. And become more culture or to- culturally relevant or Toby Mac or a throw out here to my younger generation, Lecrae. You're like, La who? Right? So, so you're just, you're just, you're, you're minding your own business, right? And all of a sudden, this guy next to you, he's got some, right? And so you and your minivan look over at this guy. And you're like, you want to touch this? You know, he's there doing like this, you know? So what is he doing? Is he sharing his music with you? Is that what he's doing? No, what is he doing? He's, he's using his, his vehicle is a mirror. Like the mythological character Narcissus, who looked into a pond and fell in love with the image, we love our things because they become mirrors of what we want to see about ourselves. It becomes the means by which we want people to think about us in a particular way. Friends, this is why you clean your house before your friends come over, right? Oh, you wouldn't want them to know how you really live, right? So, so let's clean this place up. Let's make it look like it only looks like three days out of the month. Well, let's make it look like that, right? This is why we do this, because there is a mirror that we want people to see us in a particular way. And for that matter, we want to see ourselves this way. Proverbs 27, 21 says this. this. This is a really important verse. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold, but a man is tested by the praise he receives. Oh, that's a huge verse. What is tested in praise? When someone pays you a compliment, the test is whether or not you will take the autonomous, godless credit for what you've done. The test is whether or not you will see the gift, the ability, the talent, and the success as something that you did autonomously, or if it only happened because of the good grace of God. That's the test. The test is whether the praise will terminate on you, or whether or not you become a conduit for the termination of praise on God. And then there's one more important text, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. In fact, it's so important that you either need to turn there or look in the sermon notes and read it along because it's, it's a huge passage and it is a, for that matter, a fulcrum in the argument that I'm making today. Verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 4. And the problem in, in the church at Corinth when Paul writes is that this church is divided. There's factions. People have become religious groupies. There's a group that says, I'm, I'm of Paul. Another says, I'm of Apollos. And others says, I'm of Peter. And they, they're divided. And Paul is addressing this issue in the letter to, to church at Corinth in verse 6. This is 1 Corinthians 4. He says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Notice the presence of pride. Their groupiness was because of pride. And then he says this, verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? And then here comes the statement that you must hear today. 
What do you have that you did not receive? That is a huge statement. What is Paul saying? He's saying that their divisiveness had created this environment where they were living by forgetting all of their abilities, their opportunities, and their blessings were gifts from God. Therefore, there should be no boasting because everything they have, they received. And Paul makes this incredibly important statement. In effect, he says to you and to me, look around you, look at your kids. Look at your job, your home, the stuff that you have, the family you were born into, the circumstances that lined up just perfectly that brought you where you are today. Do you think you did that? I mean, look at your personality. Look at your talents, the the ways that your brain thinks, the, the way that you process life. Do you think that you did that? What do you have that you didn't receive The fact of the matter is, is your whole life is affected by individual decisions, most of which you have had nothing to do with. For instance, it is only a miracle of God's grace that I'm not pastoring a church in the Netherlands or Germany today. You might be saying, what are you talking about? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that without my grandfather, who back in the 1940s, the late 40s, decided to load up his entire family, five small children, leave the country called the Netherlands, a small little city called Brukebungedijk, which translated means pants on a long dike. That's what it means. So, <laughs> so, so you may hail from some really impressive city. I hail from pants on a long dike. So anyways... <laughs> But the fact of the matter is, is that this man, John or Jan Vrogup, boarded a freedom ship with his kids and came all the way back, came to the United States, started over in the late 1940s with five children, moved to Kalamazoo, Michigan, and my 98-year-old grandmother, who is still living, survived two husbands, now has 85-plus grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and without that decision, I wouldn't be here today. And I had nothing to do with that. Everything I have, I have received. Same thing with you. Oh, you may have a more impressive city, a different story, a different trajectory, but we all have one thing in common. We received everything that we have. So certainly you are active. Certainly you've done some things. But there's a difference in viewing yourself as active versus viewing yourself as autonomous. What do you have that you didn't receive? The answer is nothing. So when I put all this together, there are two ways that we could express our self-sufficiency. The first way is talking arrogantly. I mean, this is active pride. This is obvious. We talk about ourselves in a way that, frankly, is unrealistic. We take more credit than what we should. We compliment ourselves. We slant stories to be more favorable. We receive praise that we don't deserve. We present ourselves as more than we should, and and this presence of self in talking arrogantly gets us in a lot of trouble. But there's another form of this, which is talking autonomously. This is passive pride. All you have to do here is just simply leave God out of the equation. To speak with overconfidence. Oh, some of you got great plans of what you're going to do. We're going to do this and this and this and this. And you're so full of, of, of hubris and power and, and gumption. And the fact of the matter is what's remarkably absent in your planning is God. Or any sense of humility. We talk as if we know the future. We plan as if we're the ultimate determiner of our destiny. And it is the absence of God. Not just the presence of self. No, All that needs to be present 
in your pride is the absence of God. The contrast, of course, is humility. And I read a definition of humility this week that really was helpful, and it, and it gave me the flavor of the horror of what a proud and arrogant God-absent talk would really be like. Here's what it says. I think that the way you experience humility is by not experiencing it, which is self-forgetfulness. I mean, this makes sense. In other words, the minute that you're like, oh, sweet, I am so humble, you're not, right? I mean, that's self-evident, right? So the key for humility is self-forgetfulness. The more you understand about God, the more you forget about yourself, In fact, by the way, friends, this is one of the reasons why you need to be a student of theology. You need to read big things about God. Some of you know far more about NFL football and and the stock market than you do about God. And there's no wonder that you talk about self a lot. You know what you need? The antidote for um, self-remembrance is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking a lot more about God. And what happens, the bigger God becomes, the more minuscule you become. One of the reasons that our mission is to ignite a passion to follow Jesus and we try and get him higher and higher and higher and higher is because the effect of that is we really get our place right when we get him way up there. So think big thoughts about God. Don't sell yourself short. You can think, you can read, you can read hard stuff about God and your soul needs to because if you don't, you will become bigger and bigger and bigger. You need lofty thoughts about God so you can put yourself in its right place. So the key in humility is self-forgetfulness. The really humble person is not thinking about himself. Why? Because he's thinking about two other things. How glorious God is and the other is how he could help the other person. So you're so God-centered and other-centered that self isn't even on the radar. That's a humble person. A humble person, when someone says, my, you're humble, responds with, oh, my, if you really knew me, you would not say that. In fact, that's why John Calvin said that Christianity is first humility, Second humility and third humility. Christians ought to be the most self-forgetful people on the planet. Why? Because they know who God is and they know who they are. This was really helpful. And seeing humility as forgetting myself, but also then seeing pride as forgetting God. So if humility is forgetting self, pride then is forgetting God And not putting him into the equation. So in light of that, let me ask you some penetrating questions. Do you know, I mean, do you really, really know that everything you have is only because of God's grace to you? Do you see your possessions as gifts that God has given you or as the stuff that you have earned? Do you talk about your future with a noticeable absence of reverence for God's providential care? Do you just talk about the future and never in... In your speech or in your tone is the sense of, you know, if, if God's in this. And maybe it's not even what you say. It's just the tone, the attitude with how you just have planned your trajectory of your life. You are going to shoot the moon. The reality is by setting that trajectory, you're going to shoot something. Yourself in the foot. Do you plan, analyze, and prepare? Some of you are astute planners, and I commend planning to you. But do you plan, analyze, and prepare not just to be a good steward, but because the truth of the matter is it makes you feel in control and safe? You love looking at your 401k. You love planning how you're going to get from point A to point B. You love your career plan. You see all these things together. And the fact of the matter is it's not just a stewardship issue for you. It's a control issue. You get into that portfolio. You see your your plans. You see all this stuff. And you have a feeling of you have a kingdom, a fiefdom. And in this thraldom of your environment, you become a god. Do people's compliments 
create gratitude in your heart to God? Or does it just make you feel good? I mean, it's, it's fine, great, you feel good, but is that it? Because if that's it, the absence of God actually is pride. Do you live and talk with a level of overconfidence in your plans and your abilities and your ideas? And then here's the ultimate test. When hard times come, do you panic? Do you get angry? Do you get depressed? Because you're not in control. And if I lost this job, what would that say about me? If this happened, what would people think? If I don't have this, then I have no identity. My life is this role in life. I've got to have this. And you lose that. And suddenly you find that your whole identity is lost because of the stuff that you felt at one time gave you control. So be careful, friends, because what we say is not just an issue of what we say about ourselves. It's also an issue of what we fail to say about God. Again, James isn't suggesting that you just add all of these if God wills, if God wills statements over all that you're saying. Rather, the issue is the place of self and the place of God and how we talk. Boasting can be as simple as talking as if you are God because God is not in the equation. So that then begs the final question is how does then, how does the Bible address this? What do we do? Well, gratefully, we've got an answer, and that's from Romans chapter 3. So look at this text. Another text you have to see. So either look at it in the sermon notes or get a Bible and look at it. Paul was reflecting in Romans 3 on the beauty of the gospel. And central to that gospel is the doctrine of justification. In fact, Martin Luther said that this text, Romans 3, 20 through 27, is the central truth of the New Testament. This is pay dirt when it comes to what the New Testament is all about. And here's what Paul says in verse 20. I'll summarize it at the end, but just try and listen to this argument that Paul makes. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now let me go back and just summarize five truths from this. The first, verse 20, Paul says that no human being is justified by the works of the law. Meaning nobody becomes righteous because of what they do or because they obey what God says. Nobody becomes really righteous that way. Verse 22, instead, real righteousness comes apart from the law by faith in Jesus. Verse 23, the problem is is that everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Then the solution, verse 24, is that justification then is a gift that God gives based upon the work of Jesus. So somebody else does the work. You can't do the work, someone else does it for you, and then God gives you a gift based upon the work of another. That's why it's often called an alien righteousness. A righteousness that comes outside of yourself. And then verse 26, through Christ's sacrifice, God can be both holy and merciful. In other words, God just can't say, well, 
don't worry about what you've done. He's holy. Sin has to be punished. And the beauty of what he did is that he poured out all of his wrath on Jesus so he could forgive you and still be holy and yet also be merciful. In other words, the condition of our humanity is so bad that every one of us, by our very nature, sinned and we have fallen from God's glory. And the more we try and the more laws we hear, the worse it gets. It gets depressing because the more laws you hear, the more you know you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. And the only hope, the hope of the gospel, is that God pours out his wrath, all of your punishment, and puts it on Jesus. And he takes all of Jesus' righteousness and he gives it to you. It's called imputation. He gives it to you as a gift. And the good news is that God has applied your sins to Jesus and he has applied Jesus' obedience to you. Therefore, what do you do? Answer, receive it. That's what you do. You receive it. You don't work. You receive it. And you receive it by faith. What does that mean? It means that you believe that God says that he's done this for those who believe in Jesus and receive him. And that's why millions of people miss it. Because they can't believe that they could just receive this. Because no, they got to do something. they got to do something. they got to do something. And the essence of the gospel is no, you've done enough. You need somebody else to do it for you. That's, that's what the message is. Therefore, your spiritual standing before God, this, this is unbelievable, is entirely, completely, and eternally a gift. And not only did you not earn it, you received it despite what you actually deserved. And this is not just kindness, friends. No, 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 no. This is mercy. So then Paul asks the next question, which makes it even better. Verse 27. What becomes of our boasting? And the answer is so clear. It's excluded. What are you going to say about yourself when everything you've received is a gift? What are you going to say when God says, in effect, you've done enough. I need someone else to do this for you. Christ comes in and everything that you receive is only because of God's good grace. And you're given a righteousness that you didn't earn. A righteousness that doesn't even fit who you are. He puts you in Jesus. What what happens to boasting? Answer, it is excluded. There's no boasting because everything we have, we received. Everything is from the hands of a gracious God. Everything. So for some of you, what I've just said is incredibly important because the problem in your life, the real problem is not just what you talk about. It's not talking about yourself. That's a problem, but not the problem. For some of you, the real problem is the condition of your soul. It's that, that God desires to be gracious to you, but what's happening is your self-sufficient, self-autonomous heart is ruining your life. It takes good things like money and a job and relationships. It takes physical intimacy. It, it, it takes friendships and you just make it all about you. And you destroy all the things around you. And the problem are not the things or the background or your upbringing. The problem is the orientation of who you are. And what happens is God, when you see this, comes in and he remakes you. You see, what you talk about yourself is not a problem. It's not the problem. The problem is your autonomous heart. The gospel excludes all boasting because there is no you in salvation. When you are saved... 
You're saved because you needed to be rescued. No drowning person, when they come out of the water, goes, whoo, boy, glad I did that, when they're saved. No, they thank the person who saved them. Drowning means you need help. Somebody come and, 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 and rescue me. And when you're rescued, it has nothing to do with you. That's what it means to be saved. And, man, I hope you see it now. And then in seeing it, you believe it and receive it. And God could radically change not just what you talk about. He can change who you are. And, and by the way, this is not just a matter for now. This is a matter that determines your eternal destiny. So the autonomy of your heart not only changes and messes up what you say, it damns your soul. And for those of you who know this and love this gospel, I would simply ask you, commend to you and plead with you to evaluate, do you talk in such a way that fits with this mercy that you've received? I mean, what do you have that you haven't received? Nothing. So that changes everything. Changes how you're treated. How you view when unfairness comes, hardship, changes what you talk about, how you look at your future. Do you have an elevated view of God? Do you, do you see how great and merciful he is? Do you see that everything you have has come, comes from him? And do you factor him into the equation of your life? Or do you just run to him when the bottom drops out? Do you see everything through the lens of self-forgetfulness? Or do you see it through a lens of God's sufficiency? See, boasting is far more than speaking uh, too highly of yourself. Certainly it's that, but boasting also is the noticeable absence of God and his providence in how you talk. Boasting is more than just talking arrogantly. Boasting is talking autonomously. About life as if it's certain, about the future as if you could control it, and your gifts as if you created them. So James tells us, oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say about yourself but even more while ignoring what should be said about God. What do you have that you didn't receive? Nothing. So that's got to show up in how we talk. Or we are proud people. God help us. This text is blistering because of its implications. The nuance of it is so penetrating. It infiltrates so many areas of our lives. And I ask you today to apply your word where it needs to be in each person in this sanctuary, in worship too, over the internet. I pray that you would right now reveal the levels of autonomy and how we think and how we act and how we talk. God, we repent of countless ways where we could have given you praise and we didn't. And we robbed you. And what's more, it was a statement of our treason against your glory. Lord, I pray for some here who need to really seriously evaluate the trajectory of their life, not just in terms of what they think about this message, but what they think about their own soul. And that today... Oh, if you'd help them to see it and they could receive it and believe and today be radically changed as they acknowledge their need to have Christ become their Savior and Lord. We've done enough. And it's made a mess of everything. And we need another to come and help us. And so thank you that that is found in Jesus. So help us now, Lord. To not just hear a truth and not apply it, but to really live this out and to think hard 
about how to make you a part of what we say and what we do and how we think. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.